Hello, and thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene, where we exist to help people take their next step in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that as you listen, you are both encouraged and challenged as you take that next step in your walk with Christ. I have the opportunity to uh, welcome a dear pastor friend, mentor of mine over the last, uh, well, I've been since 2010. He and Mona came to the district in uh, 2008, and so he is our district superintendent, Reverend Jeff Kunselman, is with us today. He's going to be giving the word, so if you would just uh, give him a warm welcome this morning. Thank you, Pastor Ben. Good morning, everyone. And I want to make sure my microphone is okay. Am I better this time? Okay. Last time they were also kind. They were, evidently, I didn't have it on right. And you know, you all are so polite, nobody would tell me. And so those folks have to come back in another hour and hear the sermon again. But it's so great to be with all of you. Always love being in Napoleon. And uh, thank you. And certainly, we sense the presence of the Lord with us. Thank you to all of you who are praying daily, regularly for our pastoral search. Uh, We want the leadership of the Lord. God has good plans. You believe that? I do. And the Lord has direction for us, and we're looking for that. Thank you to all of you who completed those congregational that congregational survey. Uh, Later today, the church board and I will be meeting, and that will be front and center of our conversation, and it was very insightful and helpful and will be helping us to shape a pastoral profile as we begin to take the next steps in this process. Well, there's a place down along the South Carolina coast uh, to which our family likes to go. That's us and a couple of the grands last summer. But unfortunately, there are no Nazarene churches nearby. You'd think with 30,000 churches in the world, you could get one on the South Carolina coast somewhere, wouldn't you? But however, there's two churches in that community that I particularly like to attend. One's a conservative Anglican church, but the other is a backcover Baptist church. You know what a backcover Baptist church is, I assume, right? You don't. I didn't think you, I really didn't think you did. Here's Backcover Baptist Church. Out front, they've got a big sign, and it says XYZ Community Church. And then when you walk in, and they've got a bulletin, and on the front of it, it says the same thing as the sign does, XYZ Community Church. And all the way through the rest of the bulletin, they refer to themselves in initials, not XYZ, but, you know, it's just all the way through, because that's a pretty cool thing to do anymore, is refer to your church in, in initial form. And then you get... A, you turn over the bulletin to the back page and just above the music license agreement in real small print, it states that XYZ Community Church is affiliated with ABC or in this case SBC denomination. Hence, I've given them the term backcover Baptists. Well, I have my reserve seat at BCB. It's in the balcony, and while the church is nearly always full, for whatever reason, it seems like my seat is always open. I think the rest of them think it costs more because it's really a prime seat. 
front row of the balcony, you can see everything from up there without really being distracted much. They've got really good music. You like the music here, which is so good, you would like it there. I really like their pastor. He's warm. He's, got a, he's very personable, very caring, has a good sense of humor. His messages are well-prepared, thoughtful, biblical. And then after he preaches, they have a routine that I like. They sing some more, and while they sing, people respond in various ways. They have a cross, and people take index cards, and they write things on those, and then they stick them on, or they, quote, nail them to the cross. They have these wooden backless benches with pads in front of them where people come and kneel and pray. What a revolutionary concept. You old-time Nazarenes appreciate that, a little bit of sarcasm there. People near there, kneel there and pray. And then they offer communion at several stations through, throughout the sanctuary. And after all the singing is completed and all of the prayers have concluded, they put up a scripture verse on the screens and they say verses together. And this is their benediction. And and these verses change out about every four to six weeks. Just enough time for them to memorize them and then they move on. And it's a wonderful way to end the service. I like it. Last time I was at BCB, we had such a good service. And we went through the preaching and, and then the singing and the prayers at the end. And then they put two verses of scripture up on the screen. I was surprised. Do you ever think before you know you're thinking? Do you know if you ever think before you're thinking, you know? Have you ever wondered about that? Does it count as a thought if you didn't know that you were thinking? Well, it happens with me all the time that I'm, oh, I'm thinking and I didn't realize it. Well, suddenly they put these verses up on the screen and I'm like, I have these thoughts before I even knew that I was thinking. And the first one was, really? And the second one was, that's funny. The third one was, unbelievable. And the fourth one, and all of this is going on, boom, boom, boom in my mind from my seat. I'm looking at these verses, and I'm saying to myself, really, that's funny, unbelievable. That's one of our verses. I mean, you know that Nazarenes and Baptists, we share most of the Bible, but then there's some verses that we give to them because we don't want to have to explain them too much. It just sort of is like, well, that's... You know, just give them to the Baptist. And then there's verses that they don't want to explain, and so we take those and they don't want to talk about them. So anyway, and so my last thought before I realized I was even thinking was, I bet they don't even know what those verses mean. I mean, how pharisaical can you get, you know, to be a DS sitting up there as a visitor? But they said them well. Well, their verses... Those two verses are our, our verses this morning, and my understanding is they've been your verses here recently. In fact, we're going to say them together now. So here they are, and I invite you to read them with me out loud. I had to help the first crowd with that. So I expect you to be able to read as well as my friends at BCB, all right? After all, these are our verses. Here we go. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, 
and he will do it. When we read the Gospels, the events are all in, quote, the Holy Land. Judea with Jerusalem, up north in Galilee with Nazareth. Uh, You know, we've got Samaria stuck in between there. But really the whole territory, except for government folks, it's mostly Jewish. And thus the people share a common story as a people and with their religion and their worship of the one God, Yahweh. But once you get into the Acts of the Apostles and the rest of the way through the New Testament, the locales change. To borrow from Dorothy, Toto, I have a feeling we aren't in Kansas, or in this case, in the Holy Land anymore. If you've been at church any time at all, and if you've not been, you soon will experience this, you've heard a preacher describe some particular Roman city of the first century in great detail. Thessalonica was one of those. Religiously, it was pluralistic. The citizenry believed in and worshipped many gods. Of course, the Roman coins that they used had imprints of a variety of gods. Some humans were considered to be gods or partial gods, either because of their positions of of power or, or their background. Religion was a way of life in Thessalonica, both individually and communally. Publicly, their civic meetings all began with rituals or prayers for divination or to know and to have the will of the gods. However, their religion held out very little in what we would consider to be moral or ethical or upstanding behavior. For example, in Thessalonica, drunkenness was a way of life, and they even had a god for that, Dionysius. Many of the Thessalonian cults included sexual images in their worship. Thessalonians were extremely religious, but other than a few Jews who lived there, it was a completely different framework than the Holy Land. Recently, I was in a conversation with our son-in-law's father. Uh, He taught for many years in an evangelical college and seminary, and now he's working with an organization that trains pastors in countries where Christianity is suppressed or even illegal. In one of the countries in which he's working with pastors, if a person is even seen with a Bible out on the street, he or she is immediately taken to prison. So these leaders leave their, or these pastor leaders leave their country separately. It's not like they get on a bus and all go together. They just sort of sneak out of the country and then they gather at this training center outside of the country where they are taught the word of God and then they go back in to their country to teach and to preach. And much of what the pastors are taught and then what they're taking back to their their people is what does it mean to be a Christian? Roy said that for that particular country he was describing, he said we're teaching Mark's gospel because of its emphasis on repentance, both of what we are to repent of as becoming Christians and what we are to repent or what we are to turn to as Christians. Then he named another country and he said for that country we're teaching First and Second Corinthians in order to teach them Christian ethics. He said, you see, while that particular country is religious, 
the primary religion has little effect on what we would consider as ethical behavior. For example, lying in that country is considered a good thing, an ethical thing, if it benefits you personally. Well, it's like, duh, why else would you lie unless it's going to benefit you? And it's interesting, as you read the various letters of the apostles to believers throughout the Roman Empire, you find them doing much of the same thing, including Paul here with the Thessalonians. Acts 17 is the story of Paul first going to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. There were converts, and now he is writing to many of these same people. Thus, this was a personal letter to many of the people that he knows. And he writes that way. He was there when they became Christians. And now he is reminding many of these same people what they repented from and what they were turning to when they became believers. Paul goes on throughout the letter. He tells them how much he loves them in chapter 1 and of their exemplary faith. He tells them that wherever he goes, people are talking about them and, and, and their faith that they have in Thessalonica. He spends the better part of chapter 2 talking about how much he wants to see them again. And throughout the letter, he talks about what he's praying for them about. Then he comes to chapter 3, verse 10, and he writes, quote, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in way to you in your faith. And now may God and Father, may God, I sound, sorry, Janae, I'm making you look good. Now may God, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for everyone just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. For the last several years, I've been giving extra attention to what the New Testament writers were most concerned about with those first century believers. And part of the reason that I've been doing that is it seems like in our pluralistic society where all kinds of things have changed and where there almost seems that everything goes if it benefits you, that there just seems to be such similarities between what I read what the first century Roman Empire was like and what 21st century Western culture is like. And this is certainly all the more the case, my, my intrigue, my study to know more and more is all the more the case with 1 Thessalonians because it's either the oldest or the second oldest. There's some debate that goes on there. But it is one of the earliest scriptures written, the year 51, approximately. So Jesus has been gone uh, 18, 20 years at this point. This is the first letter. You understand the New Testament wasn't written chronologically as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the oldest or the second oldest letter. And here's what they're hearing out the gate. This is what they want. This is what Paul and the other apostles are wanting to get right in the churches. And what's he most concerned about? That they love, have love for one another, both those inside the church and those outside the church, and that they have a 
holiness of heart, that he may strengthen your hearts in holiness. We have an expression in our tradition. It's called holiness of heart and life. And if you've got a real Bible with you this morning, you can write in here, right beside 1 Thessalonians 3.10. You can just write those words, holiness of heart. Or if you've got a tablet or a phone, you can just type it in there. What's he talking about? That you would have, from your heart, that you will have love for one another inside and outside the church. That your hearts would be strengthened in holiness. And he makes this link together between the two. That is, the character of God would be within you, loving those around you, and that your character would demonstrate Christ. I remember when this light turned on for me. I I grew up in the church, and I heard some really fine preaching, but you know, hey, I was a teenager, and we all know, you know, that, you know, well, I don't know, you probably had it all together, but I didn't by the time I was 18, you know, still part of my brain was in formation, that or I just came up short. And uh, much of what I grew up on hearing was holiness preaching. Now, I got I to have a qualifier because I realize I'm throwing out some terms to you this morning. Some of you are like, ooh, what's he talking about here? When I went to South Carolina and they talk about a holiness church and they didn't know that ours was, quote, officially described as a holiness church, they would, uh, what they meant was there were snakes. And I had to tell people we didn't have any. I did work it into a couple membership classes that we only let them out on the last Sunday of the month, and that always got their attention and sort of drew them back in, you know. <laughs> now you really are scared. Um, so I ended up, felt like the Lord wanted me to be a pastor. Doing my undergraduate work, Mount Vernon Nazarene University over here, Mount Vernon, Ohio. Dr. Cuby, been teaching for a long time. Had a class called, quote, the Doctrine of Sanctification. He was brilliant. I mean, the dude was brilliant. PhD from Boston College, Boston University someplace. I mean, he, he had it all together. He'd been teaching for years. And somewhere in all that, I knew there was something there, but just what was it? And he had these, he had these overheads. Um, I know. I was looking around this crowd. You know, you've got such a wonderful young church, all you young adults and teenagers, and I'm realizing uh, some of you don't know what these things are. Anybody remember these things right here overhead? Oh my goodness, really? I'm shocked. This is amazing to me. Well, well, for the the group of you that don't, and for those of you that do remember, you remember. I mean, that's before we had slides and projection systems. This was our projection system. You know, great big old thing. They lug it in along with those 16 millimeter films, and you know that was the technology of the day that I grew up in. And anyway, so that you know, you'd write with these markers on these transparency sheets, these clear plastic sheets, and they'd lay it down there, and it. Whatever, it went up that way and there was a light bulb down here and it shone through there and magically it came out on the screen somehow, okay? Hey, I've been around long enough. I remember when churches quit using hymnals and they went to these things. Oh my goodness, you're talking about something make you want to lose your religion as a pastor. Sorry, this is a total diversion right now. <laughs> because, you know, you always had to get these things backwards or upside down to get them right. You're singing like on your head. Anyway, that's, that's nothing to do with anything. I haven't thought about that in years. Sorry. Let me get focused, Jeff. Back on subject here. 
Anyway, Dr. Cuby, when he started teaching, he had these transparencies for, it must have been for like 30 years, and you could tell by the different color ink. He had started here, top to bottom, left to right, you know, normal, the way that you would do it. But then in successive years, he would have other thoughts, and he'd write it up the side and on this side and down that side, and then from right to left. And he's turning this thing around, all of this, explaining the doctrine of, quote, holiness and sanctification. But somewhere, miraculously, the light started coming on, not just on the screen, but in my head. One of the required reads we had in that book was John Wesley's A Plain Account of Christian Perfection or of Christian Holiness. And Wesley's contention from studying the scripture was there should be nothing other than a wholehearted Christian. And that the aim and the evidence of a true Christian a wholehearted Christian, is love. The book itself is nothing other than a, than a series of questions and answers. And so in it, Wesley is asked, what, is, what do you mean by this thing called, quote, Christian perfection, or what we would call Christian holiness? His reply is, the loving of God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is holiness of heart and life. Or as I like to refer to it, it becomes our operating system. And that's what God wishes for us, calls us to, designs for us. So we come to chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learned how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you're doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each of you should know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrong or exploit a brother or a sister, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God did not call us to impurity, but to holiness. And if you've got a real Bible, you can write in right beside that, that verses, those verses of Scripture, holiness of life. And you read Paul, and you read Peter, and you read John, and again and again, yes, expressed in different terminology and language, but over and over again, their concern for the church in the first century, in that Roman culture, their concern for the people of God is that they, is a matter of holiness of heart and life. Come with me to 5, 23, our verses for this morning. It's Paul's summary prayer of, of the whole book. It's what we read moments ago. May the God of peace himself sanctify, that is, make you holy through and through and preserve your whole body, soul, spirit. Paul's pointed out it's God's will for them to be, quote, sanctified, that is, to be holy in their heart and life. And now he wants them to understand it's not all on them, but it's God who provides for such. Here's a two-word expression that I very much like, and I've noticed some others like it too, and it's simply this, but God. And in many ways, 
<laughs> that's, that's an awful lot of what this book's about. But God, we were this, we were that, we were going here, we were becoming that, but God. You see, that's really justification in a nutshell. We were lost, we were condemned, but God in love sent Christ to die for us. Here we are now, unable to make ourselves holy, but God wishes to do this within us. And the fact of the matter is, there's an awful lot of teaching, even done in Christian circles and in Christian churches, that just aren't there. And it's either, woe be unto us, and it's all on you, and this is as good as you're going to get. And they would almost contend, well, some do. You're just not going to get there to living with a holy heart and a holy life. That it's impossible. And that would be right if it only depended on us. Last year, I listened to a book of sermons by the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in one of them, he commented, the Renaissance, you remember your history lessons, the Renaissance was too optimistic. Man can just become everything. But the Reformation was too pessimistic. And this distinguishes us in our tradition, for we Wesleyans are optimists of grace because we read again and again in the scripture that God wishes and God has prepared and God has made ways for us to become indeed holy in heart and life and that this is pleasing before him. Paul writes here in, his, in these words, may the God of peace and this, you know, with, with the Aramaic, and then we get it through Greek and ultimately translate it into our, our own English. We just read peace, but I have no doubt that Paul, with his Jewish mind, his Jewish background, and his thinking, he, he would have been thinking shalom and, and that idea of wholeness and wellness. May the God of wholeness, the God who, who is whole, may the God of wellness, may he sanctify you through and through. He wants you to be well through and through. And out of that wellness then, out of that holiness, out of that holiness of heart and life, we become a witness to the world. As it were, a light shining in the darkness. Not because we're somebody, but because of him within us possessing us completely. My first pastorate. Maysville, Kentucky, right there on the Ohio River. Uh, when I went to pastor there, a uh, big thing was growing tobacco in Mason County, Kentucky. In fact, you went across the bridge into Maysville. They had a great big billboard when, when you got across the bridge. Welcome to, Mason, welcome to Maysville, Kentucky, home of the world's second largest burly tobacco market. We weren't even good at a bad, we weren't even number one at a bad thing. We were second best in, in all of that. And the radio station, you know, all, I mean, just all, anyway. But it was a wonderful, wonderful little community. And uh, 
we didn't, you know, our church, we didn't have visitor cards and we didn't have pads and there wasn't anything too fancy, you know, for people to sign up because Bobby Sapp went to our church and Bobby had worked for years down at the blue jeans store and she knew everybody in town because eventually everybody went to buy blue jeans from Bobby and so she, and she grew up there so she knew everybody. So after church on Sundays, I just asked Bobby, Bobby, who was this? Bobby, who was that? And and she, she'd just say, oh, that's, you know, she'd tell me who it was. So one Sunday, this nice-looking couple shows up, sits on, on the back row. I'm glad we had it open that Sunday on the back row. And they sat there on, on the back row after church. I said, Bobby, I said, Bobby, who's the couple sitting on the back left over there? She says, oh, that's Jim and Sue McCann. They live out on the hill. Jim manages the lime plant out east of town here. I said, thank you very much. Week went by, and on that Saturday then, I went to visit them at their home, lovely home and very, I was nicely greeted and, and welcomed. We came in, started to have a little bit of conversation. And, and Jim said, Preacher, you got some good people in your church. I said, well, who do you know? He said, well, among others, I know Ollie Fryman. Well, Ollie Fryman helped direct what in these days we would call discipleship ministries in our church. But Ollie, five days a week, he drove a tugboat out on the Ohio River running barges up and down the river, including all that he'd pull into the lime plant. They'd load it up on all that lime on his barges and take it wherever they take it from there. And that's what Ollie did. So out of that, Ollie and Jim knew each other. Now watch all of this. What, we, what I didn't know when I went to see them that Saturday was Jim and Sue needed help. Things were coming apart in their lives and in their home and habits and things that were wrong. Jim told me later, he said, you know, we'd, we'd tried and he named, he named the church and it was the prestigious church in town. He said, we went there. He said, maybe a church will help us. Maybe a church will help me. So we went there and he said that started through the service, and, and then time came for the offering, and, and I looked up, and he said, one of the guys that was the ushers was one of the same guys I'd been out drinking with the last Saturday night, and I looked at Sue, and I said, i got to have better than this. Somebody recommended our church to them. They came, and they came, and they came, and then one Sunday, I preached, and at the end, invited those who would like to come to personal faith in Christ to to come forward and, and they walked from that back seat and all the way down and knelt over here at one of those good backless benches and, and we prayed with them there. They came to Christ. They were there all the time. I sensed things were going very, very well and a few weeks later, we were in church. Now, you know, I know some of you young ones, this would just be incomprehensible to you. But back in olden times, we had church, it seemed like, all the time. We had it Sunday morning. We had it Sunday night, and they were different. It wasn't like the preacher preached the same sermon. Well, at least he wasn't supposed to. Anyway, you had morning, night, and then you had church on Wednesday night. I mean, you know, you, you weren't going to get too far away from Jesus that way, I think was the idea. Nonetheless, so we're at church on Wednesday night, and used to have a thing called testimonies. People just, it was sort of like open mic in church and you never knew what was going to happen. And so Jim stands up during all of this and, and he says, and he, he's a big man, strong man. His jaw begins to quiver and his head's down. Starts to cry before he says anything. He says, I just want to 
thank you all for praying for me. Most of all, I want to thank God for what he's done in me and for me. And he sat down and we were all blessed. And then Edna spoke up. Edna was the organist. You remember organs? Anyway, we had organs. We had an organ. And Edna was the organist. She didn't even stand up. She just sitting right there on that front row. And she just says, I want to vouch for McCann. Well, I'd never heard that before, so it got my attention. She said, last night, Morris and I were sitting on the front porch, and our neighbor came over, and he works with McCann. And he said to Morris and me, the guys from the plant sent me to you all with a message to take to your church, and it's this. We don't know what you all down at the Nazarene have done to McCann, but we like him a whole lot better this way. Whatever you're doing, please keep doing it. And you see, that all goes back to a tugboat operator. I love Dolly, who with his own just gentle, humble, sincere spirit represented Jesus every day of the week, and a watching world saw the contrast and gave validity to everything else that I came to preach about that they heard. And you get it. Oh, dear. They put this timer in since last time I was here. It's like, <laughs> good grief. I hope it wasn't done on because of me. Anyway, if I come back, well, anyway, we'll, we'll extend the time next time. Uh, I know I had more time first time. Anyway, here we go. I'll make this fast. So we're down, at, down in Lima, Allen Oakdale Prison, you know, all these prisoners down there, and some of them are lifers. Don't have time to get into the whole background of this story. We got 12 guys that are taking the Nazarene course for study in preparation for ministry. It's the same course that every Nazarene minister or would-be Nazarene minister has to take. It's a, it's a marvelous story. These are dear brothers of mine. Some of us go in on a rotating schedule to teach. I've got to go back in Tuesday night. And it's just, I told him last time I was there, I said, guys, this is like holy ground for me. Youngest of the group, Deontay. Deontay's been in prison since he was 16 years of age. Jesus Christ has wonderfully changed his life. He's bright as can be. He's got this fantastic smile, just warm-hearted in, in every way. During COVID, he sends me a Christmas card, and it's coming up, I think, somewhere. Here it is. Just, just look at this. Hi, Jeff. I hope things are going as well as they can. Even though we aren't having classes at the moment, you all are still in my thoughts and prayers. And then watch this. I pray that you are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I also pray that you are being filled with his joy, peace, and love. I look so forward to seeing you, hopefully, before my release. Well, the good thing about that last line is four months ago he got out. And, uh, man, he's doing great. I mean, he's just doing awesome. He's in church and loving the Lord and all this good stuff going on. Got going to college. It's just wonderful. Here's my point in that. 
I want to live in the present tense. There are moments on the journey where we come to faith in Christ, we yield ourselves completely to Christ, the Holy Spirit is filling us, but there's this journey to be lived out. And I want Paul's prayer to be prayed for me. May the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. I just want continually and increasingly the likeness of Jesus to be in me. You see, really, that in a nutshell is what holiness of heart and life's about. It's all wrapped up in looking at Jesus. And there's our demonstration. And Paul says, my prayer is that the God of wholeness and wellness will sanctify you through and through and preserve you, make you blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus. Hmm. May it be so. So back to the aforementioned Maysville, Kentucky. We won't sing it this morning, but it's a good thought for us to end on. They sang a song, a little chorus down there at the end of a lot of, or during a lot of their services. And it was these simple words, make me more like you, Jesus. Make me more like you. Give me a heart that's filled with love and make me more like you. Isn't that a good verse? Isn't that a good chorus? Amen. May the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. Amen. Thanks so much for letting me be with you this morning. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Ben. You can tell Dr. Pencil. Thank you. Would you stand? Would you stand? Let's stand together as we go. Proclaiming the word of the Lord as we leave here. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing in this place. We're reminded that it is, it is you who does this work in us as we yield ourselves to you. Lord, I thank you for this church, the body, and, um, and all the kingdom work that you do through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's say this together. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen? Amen. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 1030 a.m. for weekly worship and community with other believers. For more information about upcoming events or ways you can connect, find us on Facebook or visit us at napnaz.org. Have a great week.